We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine news all the way from Tasmania to you. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station and head over to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakuna people. We record on Luchuita and I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land from where you are listening. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Now today we will be talking about the connections between art, science and the natural world with our guest Professor Donald Fortescue from the Californian College of the Arts in San Francisco. And even though he's from the California College of the Arts, he's actually not calling from sunny San Fran, but he is calling in from cold and windy Flinders Island, which is just north of the mainland of Tasmania. And we'll get to why he's there a little bit later on in the episode. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Donald. And while you normally reside as a professor of art and design, you're originally from here in Australia, from Sydney. And in Sydney, you originally studied zoology and botany. How do you view the relationship between the arts and the sciences? Do you think that there's a strong link? Because obviously, a lot of the time, people think of them that they must clash and they have nothing to do with each other. But how do you view mm. their interactions? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, there's a, there was that kind of big debate in the middle of the century, middle of the last century about art versus science and, you know, the belief that um, science would never really um, be able to do the things it wanted to do unless it really understood the nature of our, you know, nature of us as beings. And so philosophy seemed to be an important part of, um, it was argued that philosophy and thinking about, um, thinking about art was an important um, thing for scientists to do as well. It was part important part of their training. Um, the um, I guess in, from from my perspective now, there um, you know I see them as sharing a common interest in so many ways. You know I think of uh, about wonder and um, and kind of really wanting to understand how the world works and to be really kind of probing into the very nature of our existence. I think those things. Uh, common to the arts and sciences in many ways. Uh, the, the, the approaches that um, artists and scientists might take might be very different in ways of doing that. And objective analysis and verifiable data is very much, you know, part of the scientific methodology where artists, um, you know, they don't care about that. It's, it's much more about your experience and how that experience can be shared with other people. And, um, but, even though those two seem like extremely different viewpoints, I think that there's a lot of common ground between them as well. A lot of artists are, um, you know, are technicians, you know, they're kind of working up, you know, what, what, what sort of glaze they're going to use and what temperature it has to be fired to in their pots, or they're trying to um, reinvestigate traditional paints or, and, and pigments. And so there's a lot of sort of technical um, aspects to art making. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of wonder and philosophy in science that um, scientists often have to kind of like 
sit quietly on and not sort of get too excited about you know because they're it's not it's not you know it's not part of the role of science to be kind of you know oh this is amazing you know you're not supposed to get emotionally kind of worked up about stuff but we all know every scientist I know does you know? and um and the kind of the emotional aspect of science is a really important part of science I think every scientist I know is involved in it because they love it they're passionate about it. They're super excited about things. And uh, and I think that, you know, the science could share that side of what they do a little bit more and make it make it more human in that sense. And and maybe art is a way for that to, you know, working with artists, artists highlighting that side of what is involved in science is one way that that, that can happen. Absolutely. I totally agree with you there in the fact that science can make you have those really excitable moments and every now well it's becoming more and more common to have graphical abstracts on journal papers which mm-hmm. I really appreciate because I'm a visual learner for sure so when there's a paper that's full of text and they begin with a nice visualized version of their science I find it much easier to engage with so up on Flinders Island at the north of Tassie what are you currently working on um well, I'm kind of, it's, in some ways, it's a bit of a break from my usual routine. A lot of the projects that I've been working on for the last few years have required um, a lot of intense collaboration and working with teams of people all around the world. And um, that's, that's, um, that's interesting and rewarding and, and, and challenging and time consuming at the same time. And, um, and so one of the things I really wanted to do on Flinders was to kind of just get back into the kind of the my interaction with the world around me and just respond to it, you know, just kind of do things that made me feel, make me feel connected to where I was, um, where I am. And, um, and so uh, I didn't really have, you know, it's not a, it's not a kind of a project in the normal sense in that way. It's, it's very much a kind of like um, walk out on the beach in the morning and see what I discover and then see what happens with that. It's kind of a very kind of primal kind of approach that I'm taking here. I am doing a couple of different things. I've got some, um, I'm, in the last few days, I've been working with, um, I've been making inks out of some of the local plants that are around here. There's a really big Norfolk Island pine just outside the door here. And so I've been um, making ash out of the um, pine needles of the Norfolk Island pine and then making inks out of that and then suspending an, uh, kind of a, a tray-like apparatus from the tree and then using the movement of the wind uh, and the, just the, the branches moving up and down of the wind move the tray around. And then I ink tiny, well, not that tiny, about 10 millimeter diameter steel balls with the ink that I've made. And then the balls roll around in the tray and do drawings. So it's kind of a tree drawing itself in some ways. Um, and it's a very direct process. You know, I just get the tree, you know, make some ash, make some ink, and then suspend this drawing apparatus from the tree. And it um, creates these really kind of um, strange, very sort of, they're, they're kind of like, um, they look a little bit like um, 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 blue poles or something like that. They're these very kind of, um, um, kind of very strange abstract images that the that the movement of the of the limb of the tree has really generated i i kind of help it i sort of you know hold it and move it around and things but the the this the movement of the tree's branch really influences the quality of the drawing as well so i've been making a series of those i've also been working on um, some cyanotypes which are a very traditional very old-fashioned um 
photographic process, one of the early photographic processes. In fact, one of the very first books of, um, that, of photography was done by a Victorian woman who did cyanotypes of, um, of, uh, of seaweeds. Um, and that was one of the first published kind of photographic books back in the 1840s. I should remember, 1840s, 1850s or something like that. And um, she, um, and so I'm doing something not dissimilar. I've built, um, um, expo um, impregnating large sheets of paper with cyanotype sensitive, uh, which is a kind of cyanotype material, which is a light sensitive pigment, and then taking those down onto the beach and um, putting them in the surf, which affects the chemistry of them, and bringing them back on the shore and putting sand and seaweed on them and um, exposing them to the sunlight. And you get this kind of um, the kind of photograph of the beach of the shoreline, but it's not. It's a, it's a very physical represent. It's a very physical manifestation of the beach, kind of impregnated in the um, in the paper. So I've been playing around with that as well. So just trying to have a very direct physical, you know, my body in the landscape kind of interaction with uh, with Flinders Island. I've never been here before as well, so it's um it's a really exciting, you know, to investigate the island that way. Wow, wonderful, using nature to create art. And it's uh, funny that you mention actually using the wind there with the trees because in part mm -hmm. two, we're going to hear about how you used wind in another way, in a very different part of the world to create uh, some art in a very unique fashion. So listeners, stick with us for part two as we dive into that. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about the duo of art and science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined with expert guest Professor Donald Fortescue from the California College of the Arts. Now, I first discovered Donald's work a few weeks ago when he was here in Hobart to deliver a public lecture on his work, Creating Sculptural Instruments. And there are three in particular that I'd like to ask you about, Donald, that are connected with one another, called Instrument, 90 Degrees South, 86 strings and axis Monday. But Donald, before we can talk about any of these art pieces, to truly understand what they represent, we have to dive back to the science that they're representing. So in the very simplest terms possible, because there's quite a few words in it that I didn't understand without Googling. So in the simplest words possible, could you please explain the science behind those pieces? Well, I guess, you know, the, the good segue from the Flinders thing is that a lot of my work is really about place. It's about where things, where things are happening, you know, where, where things are located and trying to really understand that place and, and to understand at, at all levels, you know, from the very superficial is like, oh, there's a, you know, that's, this is a nice beach. I'm walking on the beach too. What's that tiny little animal I can find on the beach? And why, why are there so many of them? And where are they, why are they coming in at this time and not at other times? And so here in Flinders, I'm um, exposed to this really rich natural environment and I'm trying to understand it. Um, the work that you're referring to all happened at the South Pole you know, which is which is a very different landscape, and um, and so I was there in the um, austral summer of two thousand and sixteen and seventeen over that time, 
and um, I was there um, with the support of the uh, of the US National Science Foundation, and I was working in collaboration with the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory there. And so, in that case, I was working very closely with um, science. It's really at the um, the cutting edge of what we're able to do at the moment in, in a contemporary particle astrophysics is a is you know a very new field of science in some ways. Um, most most of you most of your listeners probably know that we the, our understanding of the cosmos mostly comes through electromagnetic radiation. You know through what we see. You know through visible light and what we um, can perceive through X rays and and radio um, astronomy. And oh, but those fields are less than a hundred years old as well at the moment. It's quite new that we're even extending the spectrum of what we're seeing. But just in the last really in the last 10, 20 years, um, we've added to that two other forms of astronomy. One is, um, well, part particle astrophysics, which is looking at the particles that are coming from outer space at cosmic rays. And, um, and, um, and now neutrinos is being introduced to that. And I'll tell you about neutrinos. And of course, the most recent version, the most recent way we get to see the cosmos around us is through gravitational waves. And that's only just very recent that we've been able to, you know, um, detect the merger of black holes and black holes and neutron stars in the in the larger cosmos. And so, there's, I guess, there's the four different ways we can understand the universe: it's through electromagnetic radiation, through physical stuff, either going out there and looking at it or engaging with it in the on the moon or Mars, or through asteroids and meteorites coming to the, uh, land on Earth, and um, and now through um, um, neutrino astronomy and also through gravitational wave astronomy. So I was working with the neutrino um, telescope that's at the South Pole and working in close collaboration with the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, which is a multinational um, international collaboration that's been running for, I think, 10 years or more, 15 years, maybe. I'm not quite sure. I think it's 15 years now, the Ice Cube uh, um, and it's um, it's it's an amazing instrument actually. It's um, it's over five thousand um, sixty uh, sorry forty centimeter diameter glass balls, each of which contain a, a highly sensitive um, photo detector um, buried miles down, kilometers down in the ice of the of the South Pole, and. Um, and the, the instrument itself is an amazing an, an amazing feat. It's a cubic kilometer of ice is used as the detector for neutrinos. And the, um, the South Pole is at 9,000 feet, 3,000 meter altitude. It's quite high, the South Pole, but it's ice all the way down to bedrock and the bedrock is at sea level. And so it's 3,000 meters of ice, three kilometers of ice at the South Pole. And this cubic kilometre of array is buried almost at the bottom of the ice, of, of, that, of that ice. So they've drilled down over 86 holes all the way down through that um, two and a half kilometres down into the ice and then lowered these strings of instruments down into the ice and let the water freeze back around them. And in the darkness of that ice, they can detect tiny little flashes of neutrinos as they move through the, through the ice. And then what did you then take from this process and turn into something that we can engage with? Well, you know, there's the sort of, you know, uh, 
probably most of your listeners vagued out in the middle of all of that discussion anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really complicated and it took me a long time to learn how to you know, talk neutrino in some ways and I'm still not very good at it. Um, and the scientists there, the kind of research they're doing is very um, esoteric, very strange, you know, very um, hard for any lay person to understand, even someone like me who's you know, um, studied physics for a bit at university, but then, um, and has been focused in that field now for, you know, eight, nine years, I've been working with neutrino astronomers. And even I'm a bit like, so can you just say that again? I don't really quite understand what you're talking about. And so my desire was really to try and somehow make normal people, (laughs) people who aren't really um, um, trained in that field to, get some inkling of what that was like, just the immensity of the project itself and the kind of the mysteries of the kind of this, you know, this amazing energy of neutrinos that are flowing through the planet and bringing us information from all around the cosmos. I wanted to try and give people a kind of a physical feeling of what that was like. Impossible to do, but that's that was my hope in some ways. And so the instrument that I built was, um, I, I kind of did a few different things. You know, I was, um, one of my tactics as an artist is to build instruments that allow me to then engage with the world in some ways. So they're sculptural objects, but they normally have an interactive component to them. They respond to the environment or they um, give a kind of a, a deeper look into the environment in some ways. So they're, they're like scientific instruments in that sense, but they're, um, they're, um, they're there to produce art, not scientific outcomes. And so the, um, I built one instrument that was, um, which I called um, very creatively and, and, and you know, with a lot of imagination, I called it the instrument. Um, and it was located at the South Pole. And it was, um, it was basically a, a three-meter-tall wind-powered um, hurdy-gurdy, which is a kind of like a, um, a, a medieval instrument that uses a rotating we- rosined wheel to um, to um, to play um, fixed strings in a kind of drone-like fashion. And so I built this specially designed um, instrument that used the wind movement at the South Pole to drive this rosined wheel that then played against a series of strings and produced a kind of like um, an ethereal drone, basically. And that was that, was that instrument. Um, and it responded to, you know, different wind conditions, the strength of the wind and the direction of the wind. Um, the temperature, the external temperature affected the way the instrument sounded as well. So it was, it was kind of like an acoustic weather station in some ways. It sort of picked up the weather and then turned it into this kind of ethereal soundtrack in some ways. So that was that instrument. Yeah. And then that one led on to a musical piece that I have in front of me actually and I used to play the cello but there are, there is absolutely no way that I would be able to read this piece of music <laughs> can you talk us through 86 strings yeah so um you know I was the just the thinking about the this amazing instrument buried deep in the ice was really inspiring and it, and it, it made me think about 
what would that have, you know, it's producing data, it's producing zeros and ones, and they're coming up the cable and they're going through these, you know, massive banks of computers and being compared with, you know, kind of analog and, and different sorts of analysis to work out whether the kind of data is significant or not and to what level it's significant and all of that's being shipped, you know, in hard drives back to the, you know, all around the world and that information's all being analysed. And it's very kind of... Um, 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 What's, you know, hands off, you know, it's sort of like there's this amazing thing happening in the ice and it gets reduced down to this data, which then has to be analysed and proved over time and the kind of magic goes away. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if that was just somehow you could, the the energy of those neutrinos, you could just feel it somehow in your body, you know, you could kind of, it would just, it'd be like you were in a, a symphony orchestra or something. It was all just playing around you. And then I had the, brainwave i guess to realize that there was there was 86 strings in their array lowered down into the ice and i just thought well if there's 86 strings why couldn't i just think of it as the 88 notes on the piano and so every time one of those strings gets activated by a neutrino it would be like plucking the string on the piano and so then we were able to get the data from a, a very particular set of a very particular um, set of um, moments and then i was able in fairly straightforward fashion, actually, to convert that into the kind of data that a, a digital instrument, a, a MIDI player, could understand, and then the um, and then I transcribed that to um, the grand piano, and so um, it was a the, the music notation you spoke about is kind of like a side effect in some ways because I just translated the data straight into piano sound, and so I just turned it into sound. But then, of course, that sound could also then be represented in piano notation. And I love that idea as well. You know, basically, it's just it's a set of data. You know, it's you know that's a set of data of what that thing sounds like, and so it's just a graphic representation of an actual um, you know a physical event, much as the data that's coming from the scientific instrument. So you brought in the audio uh, representation of what was going on, but then you didn't just leave it in audio. You took it back into visual for something to for people to be able to watch it as well. Could you talk us about the third and final one in the set. Oh, uh, yeah, about the, and so the, um, the 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 other thing that I'm interested in doing, and it's a it's a it's a fairly well established artistic tradition now, is um, notion, the idea of constraint. You know that you um, you, you might think. Well, almost all artwork is constrained. You know, you've got a, a piece of paper that's this big and you've got this many coloured pencils in front of you and off you go. And there's a there's a limit on what you can do and what you can achieve. And um, there's a, been a strong tradition since the 60s, really, amongst the um, minimalist and, and conceptual artists to think about an artwork not as what you make, but a set of conditions you set up. And then once you've set up those conditions, what happens within those set of conditions is the artwork. And um, the classic version of that is um, John Cage's Four Minutes, 33 Seconds, a really famous um, um, musical piece where um, the, um, the player comes in and sits down in front of the piano, opens up the piano, starts a stopwatch, and then just sits there for four minutes and 33 seconds. At the end of that time, closes the piano, stands up, bows, and walks out of the theatre. And that's it. That's, that's the musical piece. And Cage's notion was that What's happening all the time, of course, is that there's sound around us all of the time, but we don't think of it as music. We just think of it as sound or noise or something like that. And so his, his genius in that piece was to say all of that stuff 
is just as good as someone playing a piano. You just have to listen to it. And so, you know, that's a really nice idea of kind of constraint that it's this, there's just four minutes and 33 seconds and that's what happens in that time. So I've been really inspired by that work and, and other works as well. So what I decided to do is try and recreate a day at the South Pole, just 24 hours. And that would be, would somehow summarize all of the energy and all of the flux that was, that was flowing through the South Pole at that moment. And so that started off with a 24-hour time-lapse video of, um, of the of the at the pole with the the camera set on a small turntable that just followed the sun for 24 hours. So the video it looks like the sun is in the middle of the video and the landscape is moving around around you. And it just it's a 24-hour period and it was the middle of summer and so the sun doesn't go down; it just goes around in the sky. You know. It, goes around and around and around in a slowly descending spiral until the um, until the, um, the until the equinox when it dips down below the horizon and then is below the horizon for the next half of the year. And so that was the first part. And then we um, superimposed that on the the data we got from the um, the instrument that was over exactly the same twenty four hour period. And so that was also kind of like a time lapse of neutrino activity. Um, well, it was actually the time lapse of muon activity. We'll link it into that. But there was um, the, 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 the detector picks up lots of different information coming from the world around us. And, um, and so in that particular case, we used um, muons that were coming from the sun because the, the lens of the camera was really focused on the sun. So we were using particles that were coming from the sun and registering their activity in the ice cube array and using that data over a 24-hour period to create the... The, the musical piece, and so the, what you what you see when you watch the video is uh, a 24 hours compressed into actually a little bit longer than four minutes and 33 seconds. It's about four minutes and 45 seconds, I think, and um, that's a that's a whole day, both at the level of seeing the clouds and the and the ice move in the sky and the sun rotate around, but also hearing new, um, these new ones fluxing through the ice deep in the ice below you. Incredible. And mm -hmm. listeners, if you want to check out Axis Monday or any of Donald's other pieces, you can go to donaldfortescue.com. And last week, we actually showed them at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies as part of the Australian Antarctic Festival. So thank you, Donald, for allowing us to do that. Um, and thank you so much, Donald, for talking us through all of that. I definitely have many more questions that I could uh, ask you about about your work. And it's a shame we don't have more time because unfortunately we are at wrapping up now for the end of the episode. But thank you very much for, well, not coming in today, tuning in today, Donald. And thank you listeners for listening into That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget, you can also head over to donaldfortescue.com to check out Donald's work. So my name is Ollie Dove, and until next time, thank you to our expert guest one last time, Professor Donald Fortescue, and have a great week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team.
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. That's What I Call Science brings you awesome science content from the small island of Tasmania. Like and subscribe to get the updates when new content is available.